It's about advocating for and educating clients through any type of real estate project from um, concept through completion and then occupancy, whether that is residential, commercial, industrial, medical, retail, restaurant, hospitality, anything, you name it. If it's a real estate project, we have the, the time, expertise, and local relationships that can help bring all of the parties together to accomplish the goals of the project. Welcome to episode 154 of the AFT Construction Podcast. And today we're joined by Maureen Mascaro out of Southern Florida. And she is the founder and chief project officer at the Common Area. And Maureen and I have been connected through LinkedIn, through Clubhouse. She is an owner's rep. So essentially she is the management and liaison between the client, the contractor, the entire design team to make a project successful. And we dive into her role, her company, her story, how she's built this amazing firm of seven people now, and the complexity of projects, both residential and commercial. And more than anything, the value of her as an entrepreneur, what we deal with as business owners, understanding our business, job costing, you know, transparency with the client, all the information that goes in to make a project successful and not just the project itself, but also the continued relationship of the employees and that business development arm. Just so much amazing content. She also shares a little bit about her personal story on the episode. Without further ado, let's get started. This past May, we had an amazing Contractor Coalition Summit. This was in Nashville with Nick Schiffer from Menace Builders and Morgan Molitor from Construction of Style out of Minnesota. And we are now up for our second round of the Contractor Coalition Summit that'll be in Huntington Beach from Sunday, November 6th through Wednesday, November 9th. Go to ContractorCoalitionSummit.com, sign up, register. We have some amazing partners that'll be there sponsoring the event, amazing attendees that have already signed up. It's limited seating. We're only allowing 30 to attend. And again, this will be all things pricing, profitability, contracting, client expectations, scheduling, and of course, marketing and social media. Everything that we wish we knew in our business from the very beginning is all going to be wrapped up into just a couple of days. So we'll see you there in Huntington Beach in November. So welcome to the AT Construction Podcast. We have Maureen Mascara with us. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. Nice to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. And uh, Maureen is the founder and chief project officer at the Common Area, and you're doing some amazing things, which I can't wait to dive into. Um, we've known each other through LinkedIn, uh, more specifically Clubhouse. I know, you know, especially early on, you and I were were on there quite often. And uh, uh, at least for me, I, I, you know, business and you know, economy and COVID, like everything, just became kind of chaotic. So Clubhouse was not, you know, as common. Have you spent any more time on there since? Not really. It was a, actually a really good business development tool and relationship building tool that actually resulted in real projects for me. But then I think I just faded off and haven't found the time to go back on. But I loved it for that sort of acute moment in time when it was great. I know. I, I, I loved it too. And especially for us in like the contracting world, right? Design, architecture, consulting, you know, all the different aspects. It, it was pretty neat to get on there and talk shop and uh, the complication of business. But as you mentioned, it's just it's been pretty chaotic these last couple of years. So it's hard to find, you know, the adequate amount of time with all the social media commitments we all have, you know? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But I really did love and, and value the conversations I had with fellow professionals. And it was more about that connectivity in a time when we were still struggling to, to get out there and network physically to have that conversation and an interaction and intelligent conversation um, about what we do and how we serve clients and how our company cultures are and, just um, 
and sometimes connect with potential clients too, which is great. Okay. But, so I, I do want to yeah. talk about this to potential clients and kind of your network and how you're branding and marketing yourself. We'll get to that. But I think first off, for those who understand what you do at the common area and kind of your role right now, Maureen, is that, you know, you, you are an owner's rep and let walk through what that is. I mean, I know what that is, but for our listeners that don't know what an owner's rep is, like explain just in general, kind of what that means. Yeah, it's, it's actually kind of difficult to explain to people who have no concept whatsoever of what it is because it actually can mean multiple different things. Um, and people who are an owner's rep can specialize in different aspects and different project types. So in its, in its essence, I say that it's about advocating for and educating clients through any type of real estate project from um, concept through completion and then occupancy, whether that is residential, commercial, industrial, medical, retail, restaurant, hospitality, anything, you name it. If it's a real estate project, we have the, the time, expertise, and local relationships that can help bring all of the parties together to accomplish the goals of the project. And we actually establish those goals with you, making common sense decisions and advice along the way. So we establish the budget and the schedule. We procure the team members. Um, we then act as the conductor of the orchestra to make sure all the team members are collectively working towards those goals. Um, and then we just make sure that the project is done right or that when mistakes happen, because it's construction, they're going to happen, that we're all working together to resolve them with the best possible outcome for the client in whatever form that may take. And um, sometimes people perceive that as needing to be the bulldog on behalf of the client. But I find our best use of our expertise and time is actually making sure that the project itself is successful and that the client is happy with the outcomes despite delays and change orders and things that come up, but that we've all worked our hardest to work together to accomplish what we need to for that client. It's interesting because as you're sharing that, it's funny, I'm sure there's a lot of contractors listening and they're probably grimacing a little bit to think, oh, owner's rep, like now I got to deal with this other party. And it's kind of funny because I, you know, my career, it's not totally often in the residential side, but I have done in the residential, especially commercial. I've dealt with a lot of owners reps throughout my career, especially early on in my career. And what's interesting, and maybe this is kind of glass half full, you know, mentality, but what I found is that, yes, I mean, the, the purpose, like for you, Marine, to come in, I mean, you're representing the client, the project to make sure it's successful. But what I found is having a really educated party, such as yourself, that's in there. You're almost like a mediator. So how many times for me, especially on some of these complicated builds, the client is actually inhibiting the process or product, right? Changes, personality, lack of information, uh, I mean, whatever it is, you know, not understanding. Fear, yeah. distress. Yeah, budget, time frame, schedule. Like, but having someone in there that from the beginning that's like, okay, Brad's giving update of pricing and the client's like, why is this so expensive now? Like what happened in the owner's office? Well, actually, you know, I'm pricing some other projects and doing this and it's way more than that. Like you're within range. And so you kind of have this liaison that's, they're not really trying, I mean, they're always looking at the best interest of the client, but at the same time, they're looking at the benefit of the project. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the contractors and other vendors that are related to the project that I work best with understand and appreciate the role that we play and actually welcome that participation because they've been on the other side when they've seen the chaos that can ensue when you have a client who is distrustful or paranoid or uneducated and they're getting in the way of the project in ways that were avoidable had they been given the right guidance. And many clients and other contractors and architects and things that aren't familiar with the owner's rep role 
um, expect that the contractor or the architect or some other member of the team is going to fulfill these specific roles and duties that we are responsible for. And the reality is if that you have any of those other parties doing that role, it's actually a conflict of interest because of the dynamic of the project. And so we create a neutral third party that is working for the best of the project as a whole. And that's really what's super important to me to make clear is that I, I often will tell the client that, that you will probably be the sole reason that the project is delayed or over budget. And if you allow me to work the process with you, then we can avoid that. But if you fight me on this and you don't understand the ways at which you need to participate maybe differently than you were expecting, then you know, I'm gonna have a harder time working the project for you. So, um, and I keep reiterating that through the process to remind them like, listen, here's what we need as a team to move forward and here's the roadblocks that we're facing you know, let's work through these. It's interesting because I'll, I'll give a recent example. I have a client that they're building this incredibly, uh, you know, very detailed custom home. Like there's a lot of scope. Um, but part of the issue, like I'm very involved in pre-construction, right? Our team is, and I have a great pre-construction team. And so we're working with the clients, you know, we're kind of doing our best to drive the project with the architect and designer and, you know, landscape architect and everyone involved. Notwithstanding all that, like we still have like run-ins because, I have relationships with these architects. I'm pushing on them. Like they're delaying things. However, I had an owner's rep on this one house. And what I loved about it is similar to you, Marine. I mean, they're coming in and they're saying, here's this pre-construction schedule. Architect, you need to deliver these goods by this date. Designer by these date. Brad, you need to have this by this date. So they're making everyone accountable. And I don't, you know, for me, I'm okay being accountable because it makes us ensure that our systems are in check and in line and we can hit those dates. But it's a third party ensuring that the architect's on time, designer's on time, which means the project Mm -hmm. will actually start because for me as a builder, the project isn't real until we get that shovel on the ground. A hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are establishing the beat of that drum and making sure that everyone involved understands that rhythm and can meet the obligations of those milestones. And, and honestly, when things come up that, that have to shift the schedule, we all collectively understand what happened and why and what the game plan is to move forward from there so that hits to the schedule aren't as dramatically disappointing as they may be otherwise, where it's like, well, you know, why are we even, we have a permit for three months now. Why are we waiting? What, what's the problem? What's the delay? So we definitely help move things, keep things moving or educate and communicate with the rest of the team about what's happening. So I, I, I would imagine some variation, you know, commercial residential for you on your plate. And then without getting in as any specifics like dollar amounts or what you charge, how, how does that look like for you, you know, when you're putting together maybe a proposal? Like, what are you taking in, um, you know, the, f- from scope to um, time, that commitments? You know, is this an hourly thing? Is this a contract thing, a square footage thing? I mean, does it vary between the projects? Yeah, so it's a great question because owners' reps all propose in different ways. And so if the client is interviewing multiple firms, and they're trying to compare the proposals, it can be very difficult. It's like my issue. Some I have that same are... issue. And I'm a, right? yeah. But no, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so ma- many owner's reps charge maybe a percent of the cost of the project, right? Whether it's hard cost or total project cost. But our role is an innately supposed to be saving the client money in the mm-hmm. long run, like avoiding change orders and cost escalations and negotiating pricing to what we think is fair and right. And so if that's how I'm incentivized, it's, it's counter, you know, it's, yep. it's counterintuitive. Yeah. Um, others charge on a per square foot basis, but that can really skew things when you have a small square footage or a large square footage and it just doesn't reflect the Scope true work. 
effort mm-hmm. it takes. Yeah. And the scope of work. And that's just not a fair way to look at it from my perspe- perspective. So what I've created is actually, um, a, a, a spreadsheet really that I plug in for each phase of the project, you know, uh, pre-construction design, permitting, active construction, close out, um, those diff- different phases change a little bit depending on the project type, but I figure how many team members and how many hours per week do I think are needed to really help the project, to give the project what it needs to be successful. And then all those hours combined with the various rates of each of the different team members kind of add in my overhead and profit to it. And it sort of calculates a monthly fee for me. And then I look at that, the complexity of the project, the location and travel that may be needed, how you know, needy is the client or how needy is the team, how sophisticated is the team I get to work with if I get to choose them, or am I coming into a project where all the consultants and contractors are already selected? Um, And so those affect the time and effort I know it's going to take us to to lead the project. Um, And then I kind of gauge the market, you know, what do I, who am I competing against? What do I think is right and fair for this client? So it's, it's a little bit of math and then it's a little bit of just, um, you know, thinking through it and what makes sense. I always staff my projects with a minimum of three people, which probably sounds excessive to most people who have dealt with owner's reps, but we always have a project executive, which is typically me. Then I have a project manager or two um, because life happens, COVID, people get sick, grandmothers, you know, pass away you or know, whatever, get yeah. sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, pass away. I don't know. No, it's say, okay. It's but yes, that, yeah. that happens mm-hmm. too. Um, sometimes six times for some people, but um <laughs> But yeah, life comes up. So I don't want there to be any miss in the overlap between the service that the client's getting. So typically there's one core project manager and then there's a backup who's listening in or on emails or occasionally pops in for calls, especially if we know there's a vacation coming up. And then there is my project administrative support person. And that person really does a lot of the administrative support on a project so that the project managers and myself can really focus on our best and highest use of our skill sets and our knowledge and our relationships. So she's tracking things like um, pulling, you know, bids from vendors and making sure they respond to emails, um, tracking the contracts and invoices as they come in, entering them into our spreadsheet that sort of tracks our budget and invoices against contract values um, and original budget and just sort of scheduling meetings. I mean, that can take, you know, hours of your day if you're not careful trying to coordinate calendars from people in different time zones and, a, you know, a meeting that needs 13 people, 14 people and, and getting everyone's availability. So she handles a lot of that. So it's three people on, on most projects. Makes a lot of sense. And as, as you're walking through this, especially leading up to how you set the staff for each team and, and going back to, I don't want to be insensitive laughing about passing away a grandma six times. The reality is we know some, you know, this is a reality that some employees are uh, more focused and some not so much. And so we're all dealing with that on our own side. Right. Um, but, but, to your point, you know, when I think about this as a builder, like if I really want to be successful in my business, I have to understand my cost. I have to understand my beta- database, right? If a client comes to me and says, Brad, will you lower your fee on this cost plus? I really have to understand like what's this project going to take, the scope, the client, like how much I have to carry, you know, manage, uh, difficulty environment, yes. length, you know, all these things, warranty that's going to come up, you know, value. And so there's so many things you really have to understand your numbers. You have to use cost analysis, job costing, like all throughout and at the end. And essentially you're doing that too, Marine. I mean, you understand depending mm-hmm. on scope of work, project, duration, complexity, square footage, you know, because as you mentioned, you can't just build square footage because what if they're doing, you know, a multi-use where they have maybe 5,000 square feet of office space and 50,000 of warehouse. I mean, it's a little bit different project as opposed to maybe 50,000 square foot 
all office space or whatever, or, you know, restaurant, whatever it may be. So it's really important to know those numbers. And it sounds like you've essentially done that because that can help you be really competitive and clear to set that expectation of pricing yes. with your client. Yes. And also sometimes those 3000 square foot little office projects take just as <laughs> yeah. much or more time and effort than the 20,000 square yeah. foot <laughs> office. Yeah. Typically more. So yeah. And then I always um, set aside one to two projects a year to work with nonprofit organizations and really offer a significant reduced rate. And that's just part of my, you know, community involvement you know, need to, to give back and to contribute. Um, so why do you do that? So, and, and let me ask this because the more successful people that I've met or spoken with on this podcast, such as yourself, Marine, they do this, right? It's not something that's being asked of you. It's not something that, you know, you bring a strong arm into, but it's out of the goodness of your heart. Like where does that come into play with just trying to run a business? I think that it, it comes from two different places. One is that, you know, I was born and raised here in Miami in South Florida, and I am deeply invested in the success of the community and understand that it takes both economic drivers as well as maybe the, the not revenue driven, but other organizations that help a community be successful as a whole. And Miami has constantly been evolving, and especially in the last two years with COVID. I mean, we have such a transformative community here that um, these organizations that, that, help and support our community are really important. And then the other way, so I want to be a part of that in, in my humble way. Um, and then they don't have the sophistication or staff or knowledge to handle a real estate project. They just don't. So you, you, you're left with an organization who doesn't have a budget to handle a project, barely can afford to do the project to begin with, certainly can't really afford to hire, you know, boutique level services like my firm, uh, but yet they're going to struggle. And there are the organizations that need the help the most in many ways. So it just touches on that for me. And the other part is that I know a lot of people who own um, or who founded nonprofit organizations. And I've been intimately involved in like business owner groups where we have nonprofits that run their nonprofits like a business. And so I hear their struggles. I understand what they're dealing with. I understand um, you know, their dynamic. And so I just feel like I need to, I, Maureen Mascaro needs to do something. And here's the way that I can contribute if I can't contribute my time or my own finances to their actual effort in the community. I love that. And, and you brought up a couple of points that I wrote down because you talked about that. Yes. In any community be successful or city, I mean, municipality, whatever it is, you have to have the economic drivers, right? You have to have companies that are successful. They're paying taxes, employing people, right? It keeps the health of the economy as it should be. But additionally, you, you have to have these organizations to support everything else, right? Whether housing, you know, YMCA, youth, spousal abuse, I mean, whatever it is, there's a lot of different organizations that do some amazing things that we're involved in as well. And I love that because as a community, I mean, the more support they have, as well as the tax incentive side, as you, you know, those two things go together. And to be a part of that, as you mentioned, and I've been on that side working with maybe a YMCA or some of these charities. And to your point, like they're, they're working so hard focusing, whether it be on youth or, you know, sexual abuse people in some cases that they don't have the sophistication. I shouldn't say sophistication. they just don't have either the time and have an experience, you know, working on a real estate project, construction project. And that's where you can leave that burden for them. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I do have seen the impact of our services to help them through a project and they're deeply grateful for it. And that's incredibly incredibly satisfying for me. And it's, it's also, you know, one of the reasons that I do a lot of mentorship and a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching for people in our industry who need a little extra support uh, in their career decisions or life, setting boundaries, working through workplace dynamics, whatever it may be. 
um, I've been there. You know, I kind of feel like I've been there. I've needed the services of some of these nonprofits that I've supported. And I've been there as a young professional that needed mentoring. And so it's as I get older, it's my way of kind of giving back and honoring that time in my life when I needed support. So speak about that. Maybe you're, you know, how you become to this role, because it is uh, to be in your role for anyone listening where uh, Maureen is at is that, I mean, this is a very complex, it's a very sophisticated, you know, you have to understand all aspects of construction, design, architecture, engineering. I mean, it's extremely complex what you're doing. And, you know, to get to this point, you know, having your company and being in this role and you mentioned mentors early on in your career, you know, what was that journey like? Yeah, I mean, I, so I grew up um, partially on construction sites in the summer times with my dad as an electrician. Same here. Um, and then half my summers, <laughs> yeah. really? My uncles, though, they're electricians. My dad's an electrician, but my dad was union, so I grew up yeah. elect, doing electrical as well. Yeah, so I, I, my dad would have me, um, you know, screw on outlet plate yep. covers, and if those <laughs> screws weren't aligned vertically, you know, top yep. and bottom screws, man, I was in trouble. So, yeah, it instilled in me a sense of... Um, quality of work and craftsmanship, even within that trade, which doesn't get a good rap for having quality craftsmanship. But at any rate, I, I also um, spent a lot of time with my mom on the summers. She worked in the law firm. So I was reading depositions. I was reading legalese. You know, I was getting used to that world. And so now what I do is kind of a perfect marriage of those two types of um, things. I'm in the field looking at construction work and talking to contractors and subs. And then I'm also reading contracts, advising clients on contract language, terms and conditions, and, um, you know, fighting what's fair or not fair within conflict, um, and, and coming up with a way to, for conflict resolution. So my background in terms of my career path was actually had nothing to do with construction or real estate. I was in corporate strategy, mergers and acquisitions, and, and acted um, in large part as a project manager without the title because I was an executive assistant for C-suite executives. And they always had me doing pet projects and managing things that required collaboration between all the different departments of the company and at different levels um, and needing to set out project goals and then find a way to make it come together and achieve this thing. So I'd gone through a career shift um, at some point in time and uh, went into into a real estate company sort of temporarily, I thought. And it ended up being the best decision ever because I got exposed to this world that I fell in love with. And I was on the leasing um, side of commercial real estate, uh, helping support the brokers. And I know I didn't want to be a broker, so I kind of asked for um, transition to their project management department. And that is where I shadowed two, um, two guys in the department who were always slammed. They probably work 60, 70 hours a week. And uh, I started as a project coordinator, just learning as much as I could. And they sort of said, you don't have, you don't have a construction background. You're not an architect. You're not an engineer. You're not a contractor. What makes you think you'd be successful <laughs> in this role? And I said, well, you know, the truth is, is that look at all these transferable skills I have. I'm a good communicator. I know how to talk to executive leadership and I know what they want to help them make decisions. I know how to bring groups together to make collective you know, goals and then work towards those. I can learn what a soffit is. I can learn, you know, I can learn about construction and construction is always evolving, but at the end of the day, it's brick and mortar. It's still the same caveman tools that we, we might've been involving for the last couple hundred years, but in its essence, it's building things. Um, so I can learn that, but my innate skill set as a person, as Maureen, 
um, is going to be embedded in whatever I do. And I bring that to the table. So they said, fine, let's check it out and see if it works. And here we are 10 years plus later and I'm rocking it. But what happened is that I shadowed these guys and I realized I wanted to emulate a lot of the ways that they were leading projects. But I also thought that I could do it differently. And I want to say better because that's diminishing what they did and how they did it. But I saw ways that I, I couldn't do with it. I couldn't, like, one of them was a strong New Yorker, like, big Harley construction guy. And he'd come in and he'd pound the table and he'd yell at the contractor and he'd, you know, force his hand and, you know, throw around his weight and sort of get what he wanted that way. But I, I'm not going <laughs> right. to do that, you know? And so, so I would use other skills I have to accomplish the same thing without pissing off the entire team. So I, I just saw ways that uh, mistakes were, could have been avoidable had they been handled differently. And I developed my own method for doing things. But within that, I found that I was starting to work the 60, 70, 80 hours a week thing. And so I had no life. I had no personal life. I couldn't, couldn't date. I couldn't you know, see my family. I lost my friendships that I held dear. Didn't have my book club anymore. I couldn't kind of really live life. And I was being compensated a salary. It didn't matter how many projects I was winning for the company or, or what I was doing. I was still getting paid the same. So um, it just occurred to me that if I just won one of those projects or two of those projects myself, I could pay my rent. I could do all these things and I could, you know, live a, live a comfortable life and be happy. And so I weighed all the pros and cons. I set myself up for a chunk of savings so that if I failed that I wouldn't, you know, be on the street. <laughs> And, you know, I, I took a leap of faith and I actually met a woman on a flight to Vermont who said, she, you know, we were talking on the flight and she was a real estate mogul in New York. I didn't know it at the time, but she said at the end of the flight, here's my card. If you leave, decide to open your own you know, company, let me know. I'll be your first client. Wow. And yeah, it took me like a year to call her and sort of say, hey, are, you know, were you serious? Do you remember me? And she said, absolutely. Let's start working tomorrow. So she's still my client today. You know, it's six years later, she's still my client today um, because she just had a project in Florida that she couldn't get done without, you know, local support she trusted. So that was my starting client. And then it just snowballed from there in the last five, six years now. This episode is brought to you by Pella Windows. When it comes to building homes at AFT, almost every project has Pella Windows. And they've been just an incredible partner of ours. And locally, Sammy and Adam, they are not only amazing business partners behind us, but they are super close friends. And I speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships, right? Relations with our customers, with our vendors, with our suppliers, because at the end of the day, I'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to, to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick. Their they're company culture, their integrity, their honesty. You know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes and even multi-million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra contemporary, historical preservation, and large traditional projects. So for anyone, any scale, any size, they're the ones to call. They're here local. You know, they have an amazing Instagram. Make sure and give them a follow to see what they're doing. So if you need windows and doors, give Sammy and Adam a call. We stand behind Pella. We love what they do, their culture, their brand, and especially their quality. And if you want to learn more about Pella Windows, check our show notes. We'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out. 
For those of you that have listened to the podcast, you know how big of a fan we are of Build-A-Trend and that we have used this software for the last four years. And many of the guests that we've brought on the podcast are also Build-A-Trend users. And in this day and age, with as busy as all of us are in construction, as complicated as it is with escalation pricing, lead times, tracking, organization, all of us need a good project management software to help simplify and organize our business. And there are a couple features that we love a ton about Build-A-Trend. And one is the owner portal. The other is the daily logs. And these are features that we use daily, right? Half of my clients are out of state. And as an owner, it is so imperative how we communicate with our clients, with our team, with our customers. And through Build-A-Trend, this allows us that quick connection. They can check at any time. We can communicate with them. We're up to date. This has actually helped us win jobs, win projects because of that organization, especially at pre-construction. And Build-A-Trend also offers a ton of service on the back end, training and understanding and workshops, you know, to help us use our software effectively. They also have the podcast, The Building Code. To learn more, head to buildertrend.com backslash AFT to get a 60-day money-back guarantee on your Build-A-Trend account. That's 60 days to make sure you love this product with no pressure, and I know you will. It's amazing. I mean, just that understanding, you know, to get into the industry, as you mentioned, you know, and say, okay, I, I, I definitely have a different method, right, of leadership and communication that I know I can be successful in this market, in this arena. And then, as you mentioned, I mean, the company culture side, which I think is really valuable that you shared is that, Maureen, you had the personality, like, to come in. You're like, I have the skill set communication and dealing with C-level execs, and, you know, I understand. I can learn, the you know, the nuance of construction or terminology or verbiage, whatever it may be. Which is very similar. I mean, you think about hiring, like when I'm looking for people, again, company, culture, communication, you know, uh, there's so many things that go into it without just construction knowledge, right? Because there's certain things we can train. But as you mentioned, when you go off on your own and start your own company, I mean, of course, you had a great connection you made, you know, from this lady in Vermont. What were some of the challenges? You start your own company and in this space that you had some experience, but now you're on your own. You're, you're, you're trying to wear all the hats, business development, managing setting up the team. I mean, just speak to the complexity of where you started to where you are now. Yeah. I mean, you you have to recognize that I went from being the doer to being the leader of the doers um, pretty quickly. And it it's, I'm still transitioning that I'm still doing the things. Um, but I recognized that maybe I wasn't the best person to do all the things anymore. Maybe there are younger, more energized people or people with different levels of experience that can do different project types I've, than I've ever done before. So I, I recognized my biggest challenge in my first couple of years was that, well, crap, what if I encounter something that I don't know how to handle and I no longer have a company behind me that can help me resolve these things or mentors to go to that are my boss that I can troubleshoot something by? It's just me. It's just me alone. And so that was isolating sometimes because um, I, until I learned that I do have resources and that I can rely on my other industry colleagues out there when I encounter a problem and I can ask them for their advice and guidance or if they've ever encountered something like that before. So initially being alone was like my, it was my, like my hardest hurdle. And then transitioning from the doer to the leader of doers was the second major hurdle that's been a challenge. But, but yes, check, check, check doing the marketing, doing the legal document reviews of my contracts and terms and conditions, setting those up to be successful and, and bright and correct, trademarking, right? And doing all the things that you're supposed to do as a business was 
um, you know, took a lot more time and effort than I was expecting it to, or didn't, didn't really think of that because I thought I'll just do one or two client projects a year here and there. And I, I didn't think or dream that it was going to evolve into what it is today, which I'm incredibly proud of. And, and yes, you know, I'm here for it and I'm growing it. And I am truly believe I'm a small business owner and entrepreneur that's expanding a business into something great. But when I just started out on my own, I was just desperate for mm-hmm. work-life balance. And that's, you know, so that's kind of been my journey is how do I put on the business owner hat, take off the hard hat and put on the business owner hat and the CEO, and what does that mean? So learning how to track my finances, I had an Excel sheet that tracked all my revenue, my project type, all of my expenses in every category. In fact, I still use it today, even though I'm transitioning to QuickBooks, I'm still using that Excel sheet because it helps me deeply understand my business model. And unless you understand your business model, you can't make decisions. I think you were mm-hmm. alluding to this earlier. You can't really make the right decisions for your company if you don't know your financials. But I also attended... I did the Goldman Sachs Small 10K, um, 10,000 Small Business Program, um, and that helped me uh, tremendously with learning, you know, marketing, HR, league, all sorts of skills that they teach you there. And it's like a deeply embedded program that you do for several months. Um, and there's every class, there's you know, there's teachers that teach you certain subjects, and then there's homework. Um, I did another program like that my first year called Scale Up that was a nonprofit in the community that was helping small entrepreneurs, like new stage entrepreneurs, figuring out how to incubate their idea and make it a business. And so I learned to be, I always was, but I learned to be even more resourceful. And I think that people can um, really benefit from thinking through the fact that they're not alone and that there's tons of people in the community both locally and in Arizona and other places who are more than willing to give you advice and guidance and, and help you down a path when you feel stuck. So you're never really alone as an entrepreneur, even though it does at times feel lonely. Um, there's a, an amazing community out there if you just tap into it. I totally agree. And that's, again, going back to LinkedIn Clubhouse and kind of bringing that back is that, yeah, that's, you know, uh, you and I connected and, and, and so many others through that platform where it's, you know, entrepreneur, as you mentioned, it's uh uh, it, it, it could be really challenging, you know, it changes every five minutes, your, your mood can change depending on, you know, how things are going. And, and you mentioned this too, the balance side is that going off on your own probably increases the stress. And there may be some weeks where you're working even more, but then you have that flexibility where some weeks you can work less or take time off, but you still have that stress out there, right? Running the business. And as you mentioned, you know, understanding the business, understanding the personnel, which I believe now you've grown to what, seven, right? Seven employees there. Yep. Which, Seven which is now. super amazing. And, and how does that look now with the seven that you have, you know, commercial, residential and clientele, you mentioned Clubhouse helped find some. I mean, how has that expanded just, you know, the, the lead generation that's come in? Is it through social media? Is it through client recommendations? You know, how has that business been built to now you have seven people at this incredibly uh, successful boutique firm? Yeah. So most of my business, believe it or not, is just word of mouth recommendations from either industry colleagues, architects, brokers, um, other professionals in the industry, or it's other clients referring me to future clients, to prospects. Um, Sometimes it's an attorney in the community that has worked with me on a land use thing I was helping a client through and I needed their expertise. Um, And so they kind of recognize that I've got a counter skill they can recommend me to future clients. And so it's really just about respecting other professionals in the industry and building like a a powerful, healthy working dynamic with them when we do have to collaborate. Um, And it it goes both ways. 
Um, you know, I don't pay for referrals. Uh, and that's a big thing. I think some people expect to get a referral fee, but don't recommend me if you don't want to recommend me. Don't recommend me for financial right. reasons. Recommend me because you believe I'm the best choice for this client and you know that I'm going to serve them well and represent you that puts your name on the line to recommend me. Um, but that being said, I actually have a major background in marketing and business you know, administration. So I love marketing, right? I can't help myself. I love the idea of having a brand identity and being proud of what you do and um, talking about it. And so um, I have social media accounts. I have LinkedIn um, for both personal and, and my business. I have Instagram, Facebook. Those are less um, kind of, I, I don't pay as much attention to those. But what I do is I write blog postings. I have a writer that helps me now with that because it, I used to just do it myself, but now I can afford to pay professionals who are really good at writing to do that for me. Um, and then I check them, of course, or come up with the concepts. But um, so it's that. I also do a lot of speaking engagements where I talk to chambers of commerce or um, a, a women's business group or, you know, countless different opportunities where, or industry events I'm asked to speak at where I talk about what we do or how we do it or women's leadership or um, mentorship or any a number of topics that I might speak on. Um, and that gets me out there in the market as a subject matter expert. And it also shows how passionate I am about just being involved in my community. And especially now that we have so many people relocating from other cities to South Florida, it's really important that um, when people are Googling things or you know, look at my YouTube channel, I have a YouTube channel, that they are seeing me as an active member of the community, an established, consistent member of the community. And that legitimizes, I think, when they get the referral to me, they can see that I have a legitimate presence that's longstanding. I'm not just a one-off, you know, small, you know, single-person firm that I have substance to me. Um, the other thing I did during COVID, actually, that helped tremendously was I started doing these really fun um, like selfie, like job site uh, videos on my cell phone. And eventually I got sophisticated enough to like edit a cover thing on Canva and then put it on YouTube and like figure out how to do all that. But at first it was just me doing a 30 second or minute and a half clip talking about something specific on a job site or just updating a project status in general. And then people loved it because again, it was COVID and we weren't having a lot of you know, in-person, you know, interactions and literally no other owner's rep was doing this in the market. So it was really giving me a platform to have a voice in a different way. And it, it really caught on. Now, of course, just like Clubhouse, I kind of fell off from doing that, although I'll do one once in a while, but that was tremendously helpful for me to gain exposure. And I would have people call me, I saw your video, by the way, I have this project, I'm going to introduce you to the client. So that generated a ton of business for me at the time. I love that because I will build on that. I mean, I've seen that Marine is that, you know, from an owner's rep side, it's very rare that I see any content out there, you know, in that industry, it's just not happening. And you've really optimized this, you know, with your brand identity and becoming a thought leader in your industry and in our industry, just of like what you do, you know, the value and the complexity. And we'll get into it. Cause I want to ask you some questions. Cause you wrote this amazing article on, you know, just being a female in the workplace and going through pregnancy, which we'll get to, which I thought was just super amazing. But, um, but again, just that aspect of being an owner's rep and like the, you know, being out there, it's really hard. But at the same time, to your point, you know, as you speak in panels and you're active on YouTube and LinkedIn and Clubhouse, you know, it, it builds that web, right? It builds, you know, that ripple effect where now you're starting to get the right clients. And so when the clients come in, 
are you really particular if it's commercial residential? Like, what does that dynamic look like? You know, is it tilted one way or the other? So right now it's actually 50-50 commercial and residential. And I, I would say two years ago, maybe 10% was residential. So it's been a major sort of um, pivot for me to recognize what the need was in the market for residential owners representation and opening myself to how could we serve this community that serve it well. Uh, because the community of, of subcontractors and contractors and vendors, architects, design professionals, et cetera, are all very different between residential and commercial. So it was, it was definitely a learning curve for me. It still is to keep um, building my network of go-to uh, resources and vendors to use for residential. But then I also had to hire you know, an expert at residential owner's representation um, because I recognized my own limitations and knowledge and I didn't want to get a client in and then not serve them well. And so I, you know, you know, made sure that I had the right support for me um, to serve those types of clients, but we love those, we love residential. So it's high, it's high end residential single family homes, whether it's a gut or a renovation um, or a ground up home. I don't do as much multifamily, although I've been, you know, I've been invited into some, um, some condo work I've done. Uh, but usually they're high-end residential, either in the South Florida market or actually I have a really interesting niche in the Bahamas oh, wow. and really high net worth yeah, projects, uh, 10, 10 million plus you know, homes, um, 10,000 square feet, 8,000 square feet, 6,000 square feet in the Bahamas, which is an amazing project type to, to have on the, on the not books. A, but Not a bad place with. to visit either, I'd imagine, so. No, not at all. And a lot of our clients on the residential side are owning their second or third or fourth or fifth home here in South Florida. And they don't really, they're not like renting it out when they're not living in it. It's just that extra home for them. Um, or they're moving here full time because of tax reasons or whatever. And so, um, you know, those clients are increasing in number. And so we're, we're taking on a lot of those. And a lot of them actually fed from the commercial side where I'm working with them as executives on their their commercial office space, for example. And they're like, man, last time I built a home, I wish I had somebody like you who was managing the process. And I can say, well, actually, you know, we can do that too. And so I have a number of clients who are both my commercial clients and my residential clients, which has been amazing. That's incredible. So when you're looking at, the, you know, and, and you mentioned this a little bit, you know, what is your difference in role or is there a difference to a commercial project as opposed to like a really high-end residential custom home? Yeah, so the residential, high-end residential home does require a lot more time and effort, like a lot more hand-holding, a lot more um, managing of the vendors, the various, you know, contributors to the project, because I find that that community of, of consultants and vendors are a little less sophisticated in many ways than my commercial. And by sophisticated, that may sound bad, but the commercial side is very much like We've got a timeline. We want to get this project done construction-wise in three or four or five months if it's an office build-out. And everybody kind of wants to get in, get the project done, and get out. And the client tends to make faster decisions and has less turmoil in throwing the project off track and allows us to guide them through the process with our tried, true, and tested way. The residential client tends to be a little, have a lot more emotions invested in the project and they have busy lives, right? They're traveling, they've got kids or professions that they're, you know, distracted with. And so sometimes, you know, getting that like beat of the drum um, to stay steady through the project is really a challenge. Um, so how does my role shift in those two things? I think with commercial, it's actually easier 
uh, to just have a rhythm and know a process and that you can consistently stick with it. On the residential side, every single project feels so incredibly different. And so you have to have your full head in the game with those clients and really make sure that that relationship is tight and there and that your project team is on board with how this will rock and roll through the life of you know the project. Um, so it's a lot more uh, paying attention to emails, making sure the client has seen the details, walking them through the plans to understand what they're looking at, um, you know, pulling information from them, decisions from them. So that's kind of how it, it shifts from residential to commercial. And when you're looking at the residential side, um, are there cons, or should I say just in general, if you're looking at this from the client side, right, that they're looking at hiring you, is there a project, you know, not like a bathroom remodel or like a smaller project, but when you're looking at a more complex project, should a client always be thinking about, yes, I should absolutely hire, you know, an owner's rep on every project I do? Yeah, every single project, one of the first hires you should make is actually your owner's rep because they can help you identify the right team members that you should bring in for your specific project type and dynamic and personality. So we'll do a request for proposal to the architect and engineering teams, an interior designer if they're not part of the architect teams, and we'll help you interview them. You know, we'll level the bids and the proposals, we'll negotiate that so that you understand what's in them and can compare them. And then we'll make sure that personality-wise, they're going to work well with all the other team members we bring on board. Um, and so it's our central role of procurement of all the team members that really builds the the dream team that's going to accomplish what you want. And each client is so different, each project is so different that it takes a focused effort to pay attention to the, you know, it takes emotional intelligence, it takes, um, you know, nuanced understanding of teaming dynamics to make to, to make that happen well. It can, if you don't have the right team members, it can really throw everything off course. So a client will sometimes really like a contractor or really like an architect, but then that architect or, you know, contractor can't work well with other dynamics. And so you have like a clash of, you know, head clashing in a project. And that happens. And that's our role too, is to solve those problems and, and be the bad cop if we need to, so the client can stay and have a pleasant experience with all the vendors that are selected. Um, but yeah, they should absolutely call an owner's rep first. And, and oftentimes one or, or two different vendors are already on board. Usually it's either the contractor they already have in mind who they want to work with, or it's the architect that they really fell in love with their work or something and already started working with them. Um, but if we're really lucky, we get to talk to them first and guide them through that whole process. Well, you mentioned this earlier too. I think when I asked you about business development, where your leads come from, you said, you know, even architects, right. And brokers. And so it shows that, you know, that design team has worked with you. They've, they've seen your ability to put everyone together in a room, make it work and make the project successful, which means if an architect's going to recommend you again, it just shows like the value you're bringing to the project for them as an architect or a builder. And, and, you know, getting into, I guess, the pro of an owner's rep, and I'll give a good example. When I was working early in my career, we were doing this amazing hotel, um, and, you know, very complex, super high-end, um, and there was a lot of issues just communicating with the ownership group, the architect that had been let go, and there were, like, just some other comp, but nothing with our doing, but just something that, you know, had to do with the owner side, the developer side, and they ended up bringing a third-party, you know, owner's rep, such as yourself, Marine, and the same company, like they had at work experience, they had built the Grand California Hotel in downtown Disney there in Orange County, right? A very complex project. And so it was super helpful from my side where I'm trying to get answers or change orders or communication or RFIs, you know, from the architect. 
and they're expediting this. And then at the same time, when you think yes. about a hotel, uh, at least the way this resort was done at the time, it was IHG, which is Intercontinental Hotel Group, that was coming in as the tenant, right? They're you know, essentially leasing the hotel back from the developer for 20 years. Well, as you're trying to put in FF&E and you're, you know, trying to finish this project, like they have their staff living there, sleeping in the hotel rooms, like staff working in the restaurant because you're trying to get up and running. So the minute that day opens, that hotel is operating and running. And so not having, had we not had this team that had been through this with the Disney Corporation, right? There is no way we would ever finish this project. It would have been a complete chaos. So that's why, you know, I'm a huge proponent of what you're doing, Marine, and just the value you bring to a project. Yeah, a lot of times there's actually a lot of, um, you know, pol internal politics. Oh, there's way too many. Come yeah. to play. Yeah. <laughs> so we definitely play that game smartly so that the contractors, architects, et cetera, don't suffer for it. Um, you know, that's part of our role. And if we're, if we're really doing it well, then um, that shines. We help neutralize all that, you know, sometimes toxicity and stuff that comes with those internal you know, political challenges. So have you ever dealt with like OSIP policies, right? When you think about like owner control or consolidated insurance programs, does that ever come into play with the projects that you represent? Not really. No, I, I'm not sure I know what that is. Can, sure. It's insurance. Yeah. So disputes? I mean, and, and it, it depends on project type. The, the example I gave of this, um, of the hotel we did, the OSIP policy. So Essentially, what it is is that when you're working on a project of, of a big magnitude, what ends up happening is the owner or developer carries the insurance on the entire project. So typically, like if I'm doing a custom home um, on the residential side, you know, I have my general liability, my insurance policy, right? And then every subcontractor comes in, I get their certs and they have minimum qualifications and I'm getting additional insured. And, you know, they're charging me their insurance to do this project. I'm charging my client the insurance to do this. But OSIP is where... Um, Essentially, I go back to my insurance carrier, I get a credit because they're not insuring me. They're not insuring my subcontractor. So the owner, the owner's rep are actually managing the entire insurance of the project. And the reason they do that is because now, mm. and, and typically it's on the really large scale commercial, uh, they'll do this because they can ensure they have this massive umbrella policy that covers everyone on the mm -hmm. project. They don't have to sit there with insurance expirations or additional insured or you know, all the complexities, which I'm sure... If it's not a no-sip policy, I'd imagine you can speak to this, that you're still chasing yes. down the insurance side, which can be um, uh, big yeah, delay. big delay yeah, and, big and delay. chasing that rabbit down that hole, you know, trying to find insurance. So, Yeah, I deal, I deal with builder's risk where I'm advising a client whether they should carry it or the contractor should carry builder's risk. And I am dealing with reviewing the payoffs that have releases of liens and I'm reviewing those documents. Oftentimes I have to coordinate the certificate of insurance with the landlords, if it's commercial work, especially office stuff, um, every contractor that comes to the table or vendor, movers, furniture folks, all of those have to have COIs in place. And adding the additional shirt with the exact language that that specific landlord needs can sometimes take weeks and weeks. And meanwhile, they're supposed to have been on the job site, you know, two days from then. So um, if you don't know that that can be a big hurdle, it can really delay your project. So again, that's like the value of the owner's rep is that we know to look ahead for that hurdle and ask from the beginning of the project, every single person that comes on, here's this landlord's certificate of insurance requirements and go ahead and file them now and make sure they're in place months before you actually need to be on site. So yeah, that's and deal with insurance at a different degree, but yes. Let me ask you these two questions and they're two, two parts of this. So one, when, as the owner's rep, are you always involved in the pay application review process and approval and going through, you know, invoices? 
And then additionally, do you recommend that your clients have a contingency line, like an owner's contingency or builders? And do you help oh, yeah. manage the contingency aspect of the project? Yeah, hundred percent on, on both of those things. We're definitely reviewing all payups for a percent of progress to make sure that their, their billings are right, making sure that that document behind it is complete. I definitely advocate for a open book GMP approach where, you know, with contractors so that we um, have them in for pre-construction services, but then we negotiate everything up front and then the cost of the work is negotiated in a transparent process. Um, and so certainly we're reviewing all the payups and backup information that comes with that. Um, let's see the, contingency. the second part yeah. of contingency. Mm -hmm. So yes, um, uh, we, we have kind of a secret contingency we hold with the client that yeah, we that talk the about. Builder doesn't know. And then, the, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. It's smart to it have is. one because the owner's going to change their yeah. mind about things. And so we have to have some money so that not every single change order has to be a fight. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want this to be a contentious project for anyone involved. So I always have a design contingency for, you know, uh, change orders related to the design consultants. I have a construction contingency. Sometimes if it's a GMP, obviously that contingency is um, built in so that we have some flexibility that the contractor can use um, for things that they may need to cover it you know, use the money to cover, then there, I typically negotiate a shared savings plan so that if the project comes in less than the budgeted amount that the owner gets to keep some of that and the contractor gets to keep some of that, um, just to incentivize them. Um, but overall, yes, even for audio visual, low voltage cabling, um, sound masking, security systems, those, uh, owner vendor trade signage, plant life, art life. I typically hold a base budget plus contingency for all of those. And that's a negotiation I have with the client or a conversation we have about what were your expectations for budget? And is that realistic? And then what can we add to it to supplement it so that you, you can make sure that you can actually afford the project. It's like going to a restaurant and not expecting to pay, you know, the tip or tax, then you can't afford to eat. Like, let's talk about what this project's really going to cost with your eyes wide open so that um, we don't have a come to Jesus and have to do a massive value engineering in the middle of a project when that effort wastes time and it actually probably won't even save you that much money based on some of the other factors at play. So yeah, I don't like value engineering a project. I like to start with a smart budget and design it accordingly and you know deal with market fluctuations that we've been dealing with. Um, as they come with, with cost of materials and, and delays. And I love that. And you brought up something that I think is really valuable and something to think about. And this is really important to give some context is you mentioned the shared savings plan. And I've seen that happen a few times in my career, especially when you have someone such as yourself, Marine, that's a little bit more savvy with understanding the cost of a project, you know, walk through what that means, you know, incentivizing builder and owner, you know, working together with you. Yeah, so there's two there's two basic contract types, right? You have your lump sum bid, um, and then you have a GMP project approach. Um, Which is like a guaranteed a maximum savings. price, right? Yeah. Yes, guaranteed maximum price where the contractor has enough detail within the drawings to make an educated guess at what the project should cost. And then that's negotiated with the client uh, up front along with their pre-construction services. We negotiate their general requirements and conditions and their overhead and profit um, and insurance percent fee on the cost of the work. Then we go into the buyout mode of the project where, you know, we'll look at the plumbing bids that come in or the millwork bids that come in. And together with the client, we can sit and review and pick together which would be the best subcontractor for that trade based on the, the lowest qualified bid, but also other things. Can they meet our schedule? Do they have a consistent quality of work at this point in time or is their shop a little overloaded? You know, we talk about those things. Um, and so within that GMP, um, there is 
you know, the contractor has to cover whatever surprises come up or delays or cover um, material increases or labor increases up to a certain extent, unless it's an unforeseen condition or there's other circumstances that play in it where the client can expect a change order. But for the most part, it's supposed to prevent change orders from happening. But that's also because we build in that um, contingency um, float so that the contractor can use money as needed to cover things that come up that are that the contingency is allowed to be used for per the contract that we negotiate. And then sometimes the client has changes that they want to make that we agree with the contractor that we can use the contingency funds for that, even though it really wasn't meant to cover owner changes. Then at the end of the project, let's say there's $50,000 left in that um, contingency and our, maybe our negotiated contract said it was a 50-50 split. Well, that means that the owner gets to not have spent $25,000, so they don't have to pay that contractor $25K. And then the con- contractor essentially earns a bonus of $25K for having come in under the project cost plus contingency. You know, So that gives you some buffer and incentive for the contractor to go back to the subs and continue to negotiate down the cost of the work or the labor costs or to fight off change orders and to really work with their subs to manage costs um, appropriately. And it, you know, they're incentivized. Yeah. And that, that makes complete sense because the reality is, I mean, what, essentially what you're doing is incentivizing the builder to really make sure their scope's complete, their documentation is complete, their management process is complete to not have overruns because now if there's not overruns, they have a 50% incentive typically very common to whatever that credit or delta is, you know, underneath the budget and a project to split with the owner, which I think is really valuable. And something that's on the, you that we briefly touched on when I was talking about, you know, the owner's rep and the value is it's not only just the example I gave where they're helping, we you know, with our FF and E and the hotel operating while we're trying to finish construction and getting these answers in our files, but also something that's often overlooked is a commercial client may come to you Marine and hire you but they have staff, they have employees that are trying to come in and get settled, right? And relocating in, in a lot of cases. So speak to just the company culture where it's not just the build process, but now it's like, okay, now we've got to take over the building, get anyone set up, get technology working, be up and running. Yes. You know, people don't like change. You're changing them office space, commute, you know, yeah. everything so changes for the people that are involved in now the whole uh, transition. Tools that we put into place to help employees make that uh, transition because change is hard. I think they say like the most stressful things you go through are like marriage, having a kid and moving. Um, and so, you know, imagine that that's one of the most stressful things you'll do <laughs> as, you know, as a professional is have to move. Um, so we, we, as an owner's rep, we'll coordinate the move the mover and move management. Um, so that includes, you know, this person's computer and their keyboard and their chair. Does that all get moved from desk 12.2 to the new building desk, you know, 84.1 and are their peripherals moving with them? Like we coordinate all of that. Like their phone number needs to be transferred. They need to get new business cards. Like they, there's so much that goes into a move that needs a concentrated effort. So it's actually an ad services fee that we charge because not all clients want it or think they need it. So, you know, it's, it's not part of our base proposal, but absolutely it's, it's super helpful when we can be involved because the employees transition better and you have a more welcome experience because oftentimes you'll get employees who sabotage the move. Like they'll complain that the coffee maker sucks or what, you know, whatever they'll have complaints about, 
minimal thing that they're just picking at. And it's like, <laughs> we just spent the last year working on this project and that's what they're complaining about. Like why? And the CEO's, you know, frustrated because it's like, this took so much money and effort um, and it's, it's not a good experience. And so oftentimes we'll do like, a construction job site walkthrough in the middle of a project where we have hard hats available and team members can come in and, and they can walk the space and get to know and get excitement and bring that back to the rest of the employees that maybe couldn't attend and share the news and excitement. We have project photos that we share and we put on a billboard and, or a, a board and, and put it up at their old facilities. Then when they get to their new facility for move-in day, there's a board that has the seating map and other amenities and you know, coffee and whatever, pizza parties and, and all that good stuff that helps people transition in, um, you know, making sure that we get a white glove cleaning of the space, you know, a few days before I move in is important because as all that furniture and TVs are going up, like dust and debris gets strewn about, people see a garbage can, they're going to put garbage in it. But, you know, the employee that comes to their desk on Monday morning for the first time, doesn't want to see somebody's, you know, balled up piece of paper in their own trash can. So it's like, it's, it's all these nuances that go into helping the move-in experience, you know, be successful on the commercial kind of office side. On the residential side, that's what I basically spend all day Friday doing is bringing all the contents from a client in from their storage warehouse that we put it, we put it in a couple of years ago. Um, they have a ton of art. They had their interior designer come in with furniture. Um, and so I worked with her once the furniture was in to help hang the art um, change out some light fixtures that that ultimately they wanted to change. Little things like that that make their move-in experience. And it's it's a very different task for personal home contents. I was personally unpacking boxes of plates and china and you know photo albums from family, you know, vacations and putting it in the bookshelves. I don't have to do that, but you know, it's kind of part of that boutique level of service. And I, you know, just happened to reserve the day for Friday to do this because it was an important client and I wanted to be part of that experience for them. So that's the type of difference that residential and commercial have, you know. It's, it's great context because it just shows the complexity, right, that goes into something, you know, as you and I have been in the business and I go around and, you know, have the ability to maybe travel or, or even just here locally, I go and see these buildings and, you know, I walk in and every time I'm thinking about the complexity of like what went into building this, right. And getting this to where it's at and the people in there. And there, there's just so much chaos that you're trying to organize, right. At myself as a GC, you as owners, rep Marine, and, you know, to see these in place, you know, sometimes I just shake my head cause I'm like, I can't imagine like just getting this to this point, but uh, one thing I want to ask you too, because you mentioned, you know, back to the thought leader of how involved you are in the community, right? And doing a discounted work, you know, with the end, you know, nonprofit organizations, which is amazing. And then how you speak, you know, from a women's perspective and business, a women's business owner, and, and really the amazing firm you've built, built. And then you opened up personally too on LinkedIn with the article you wrote about just, you know, okay, here's the reality: I, I own a business. I'm a woman, going to be a mom, right? our client's going to look at this different. I'm pregnant, right? There's going to be some time away, paternity, maternity leave. You know, speak about that, just being open about just your personal journey, which is not easy for any of us to do. Yeah. I mean, I was struggling with how to deal with um, announcing the pregnancy professionally because I've struggled with fertility issues. You know, I'm, I'm turning 40 in October, so I'm starting late in the game. And part of that was because I was working so many hours. I, I didn't have the chance to you know, find that, that person, um, that I wanted to start a family with. So, you know, here I am in a very different place in my life and very excited about it and wanting to share it, but not wanting to scare away people who refer me business and think, 
oh, she's going to need to step away for two or three months and, and be a new mom and all that comes with that. Um, I wanted to reassure the community that I ha- I've, I'm thinking about this and I care about this and I want uh, my transition to motherhood um, to be seamless for my clients and for my industry colleagues. And then I have the support there with my team to help the project. I'm due in December. I'm six months today, so I'm due in December. Congrats. Thank you. And it's a baby girl. Mm-hmm. Super excited. Oh, that's Yeah. Cool. And um, it's the newest project I'm managing. Uh, but trying very much to, <laughs> to not manage it because nature is nature. But, um, yeah. you know, it was really important to me that my clients were made aware first before I shared it publicly on LinkedIn. So I had the independent conversations with each and every client and said, listen, I'm super excited about this. This is my journey. This is what I've been dealing with. And I want you to know that you're in good hands. You don't have to worry about your project um, missing out on on the time and attention that you're used to getting from me because here's the plan. Um, and trust, please trust me on this, but also please share your concerns. Or if we are dropping the ball, you know, because I have so many doctor's appointments to go to or, you know, things are coming up and changing and shifting for me. If there is an issue, please talk to me about them. Don't be shy. Like I'm here to talk about it and we'll make whatever changes we need to make to make sure that you stay happy and satisfied. Um, and I thought a few of them, I thought were going to be really upset. Um, and just kind of either hold it against me or not, not decide to move forward with me, the ones that I was interviewing with. Um, but in fact, the opposite happened, and I got a lot of um, shared stories about, you know, IVF and, and what they've gone through, and, um, w- you know, one client in particular who I thought, you know, was, was absolutely going to fire me actually said, oh, my gosh, I, if you ever need to talk about IVF, I have eight kids, the majority of them through IVF. I know the struggle. Wow. Um, and in fact, I set up the conversation sort of asking to quit the project in a way. I was offering another owner's rep to replace me completely, a different firm. And he said, I'm not letting you, you quit just because you're pregnant. Like, that's not happening. So it was a really, really interesting conversation to have. Um, but I also wanted to make sure that my team knew that um, I don't exactly know how things are going to change for me come January, February, March, but that we'll get through it. You know, like I'm flexible and resilient and open-minded and, um, you know, we have the business that's strong to carry me through a period when I may not be as focused on business development and following up on those leads and referrals that come in. Um, so we have a study book of business to last us well into next year. I don't have to worry about that. You know, I can relax and just enjoy pregnancy. And then on the flip side, So in terms of announcing my pregnancy on LinkedIn, it was really important. Um, You know, somebody that is in marketing told me everybody gets pregnant. It's really not interesting news, you know, to share unless you can somehow, you know, tie it to something that's greater than just you. Yeah, you're pregnant. (laughs) Um, And so I thought long and hard about what is the interesting story behind it. And it is that it's being an entrepreneur. Um, what do I think about as a woman business owner who's pregnant and, you know, needing to communicate that professionally for something that's so personal and why is it interesting or important? Well, here's why. So I'm, I'm glad that the article was well received, that, that you saw it. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was amazing, Marina, the way you wrote that. And, and I think, you know, on a high level, as I listen to your story and just kind of this example, is really what it shows is the operation you built, right? Is that you have, and you mentioned this early on, I staff it with three people. 
right? I have my, you know, executive, which is typically yourself. You have a PM, you have the backup, you have the admin support. Like you have a team, like you have an approach, you understand your business model. You can communicate that. So then, and then the transparency and communication with your clientele is valuable because you could go to them and say, look, I have this dialed in. We're not sure what the future looks like, but we're prepared for it, right? This is our operation. Here's who's in charge. And the example I'll give is um, early on in the podcast, I had a, a gentleman here, Justin Newman, and he runs a, a commercial firm here locally, a big commercial firm. And I made the comment, he was out of town, and I'm like, hey, is you okay? Is like the business struggling? He's all, look, if the business is struggling with just me away, then we got bigger problems, right? And really what it comes down to is if he was just saying that if I don't have my ducks in a row and the people trained and my organization set up, that it's not that there's tremendous value with you, Marine, and experience and knowledge and all the credibility you have, but at the same time, right, that has to be delegated and transferred and instilled in your people. And that really what is what makes you a successful business owner, entrepreneur, and, you know, executive for this boutique company that you have. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Well, it's amazing. Well, Maureen, I, I, I want to be sensitive because I know you're super busy. You have projects all over the country, residential, commercial. You've been amazing sharing your insight, like super intelligent, great communicator. It's been amazing having you on. So for those listening, uh, where can they find you and what do you have that's upcoming and exciting? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to give my direct phone number. It's 305-878-6868. And I give that out because that's how personal my business is. And if you want to talk about something, whether you're a client or a prospective, you know, contractor, partner, let's, let's talk. Um, my email address is Maureen at thecommonarea.co. My website is thecommonarea.co. Um, I'm on Instagram at the common area factor and then LinkedIn, you can find it uh, at Maureen Mascara or the common area. And then um, just kind of up and coming projects for me. Um, I am working on a private medical group build out um, in Miami beach. I'm working on a potential huge multi-functional uh, entertainment and restaurant space on Miami beach. Uh, and then we've got a couple ground up residential homes that we're working on in the Coral Gables market and Coconut Grove and then up in Boca Raton. And then I am expanding the business in terms of our service offerings by offering um, what I like to think of as um, home maintenance support for people who maybe don't live at their South Florida home all the time and need a little help with, you know, getting the roof switched out or making sure that a leak gets attended to. Um, and that's a monthly service fee. So we'll be rolling that out in 2023. Um, and then I'm also working on a home inspection services company. My partner, Will, retired from the Navy after 21 years of service. And um, so that's the business that we started for him. He's certified and we're starting to roll that out. So I'm, of course, managing that brand and all the operations behind it and growing the clientele and, and marketing strategies there. Um, and so it continues. It's going to continue to evolve and grow. And we are hiring. Um, you know, I'm looking for somebody in the residential side experience and somebody in the commercial or ideally somebody that can, you know, do both um, and be able to to uh, balance between project types. Um, and so that's it, aside from my uh, Amelia Maeve project in my belly right now. That's, <laughs> that's, I think that's enough on my plate. Yeah, if, if that wasn't enough, you know, let's start a couple other businesses and, and continue to expand. I mean, you're an inspiration, Marina. It's been amazing and uh, appreciate all the knowledge and information you shared with our audience today. Thank you, Brad. I really value what you do. I love your podcast. Um, I love your presence on social media and I have so much respect for you. So keep putting your content out there. I learn a lot every time I see what you put out there and I know others uh, do too. So thank you again so much. It's been an honor. Well, the feeling's mutual. Thanks again, Marine.
So thank you all for tuning into the podcast today. And just as a recap, if you check the show notes, they're just going to have all the links for the topics that we discuss. And also one of our favorite features now is the chapters that go through the conversation. So if there's certain topics you want to revisit or listen to, they're outlined by the time that we discuss those. And again, we can't thank you enough for all of your support. Please make sure and download our podcast, subscribe, give us a five-star rating and review wherever you download your podcast.